Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Stompcast with me, Dr. Alex George. This is the podcast where I go for a little stomp with a guest and take a little meander into their life. I'm so excited to be speaking to Johan Hari on the podcast today. Johan is a renowned author of the three New York Times best-selling books, which range in topics from depression to addiction, and now his latest book, Stolen Focus, is a deep dive into our attention spans. You may know Johan from his exceptionally popular TED Talks on addiction and depression, which have over 93 million views combined. As you probably know, I have ADHD, and so I think this episode is going to be really interesting for us all to learn how to improve our attention spans. I'm sure throughout all of his research, Johan has some incredible insights and advice. A particularly interesting bit of research that he talks about includes rats and a form of snow. You'll see what I mean very soon. Just want to say a big thanks to everyone that subscribes to the podcast. It really, really helps us on Apple to improve our reach, to get people listening and to help more people ultimately, which is what it's all about. So a huge thank you. And a quick little reminder that if you haven't got a copy of A Better Day or Live Well Every Day yet, then they're books that really can help you with your mental health, with your physical health and forming good habits. Enjoy this episode. Well, Johan, welcome to the Stompcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm bastard cold, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I'm cheerful. It is. Can't it, it is. I'm caffeinated. What more do I'm we want? I'm bastard cold, but uh, but cheerful. That's a sentence, for you, isn't it? There we go. <laughs> You're the name the... of my memory. Yeah. <laughs> I'm particularly exactly. feeling the cold because a lot of last year I was in Las Vegas yeah. uh, researching um, my next book, and um, so obviously I'm used to being in the sort of acclimatised to being either in the desert or air conditioning. I see. Yes. In, uh, yes. Intolerable yes. You're, cold. You're in, but... you're in North London in the cold, unfortunately, exactly. alas. But we can transport our minds elsewhere and warm up a bit. I don't know. Exactly. Uh, let's do it. Where are we? Where are we stomping? Uh, this is called the Parkland Walk. It's a kind of amazing little spot of London. So it, this was the railway line from uh, Highgate up there down to Finsbury Park over here uh, for years from I think from the 40s to the 70s and then it was discontinued as you can see like you know, now you know that this you can see that that's the old train platform very right? cool we're just looking over to we're, we're physically walking down the tracks effectively aren't exactly we? where the no tracks, tracks would have been exactly yeah it's kind um, of uh, it's an odd feeling imagine if trains would have been steaming through here but so you said decades ago was it that it's uh, yeah it's 1970 stopped. it was stopped oh, having wow, trains so on wow. it so um, I only know that because I literally just read it on that sign over there. Yeah. So I don't want to sound like an expert. That's a fun, that's a fun uh, fact. Yeah, so it's an amazing thing. It's just a lovely... It's a bit like the High Line in New York, if... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it, I guess it's... Uh, you've got a nice flat surface to kind of... I bet people love walking the dog or running down here. It's perfect, isn't it, really? You can kind exactly. of whiz along, but... Uh, I mean, I have yeah. never run anywhere, but I... Uh, I mean, <laughs> actually, that's not true. In 1987, I thought KFC was about to shut, so I ran there, but... Uh, <laughs> 
it was open for another that hour. Is a, that, is a re- time that, that is a reason to run, to be fair. Yeah, indeed, exactly. indeed. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me. I'm really excited to have you on the on the podcast. I, I first became aware of your work, as, as many may have, uh, through TED Talks, the power that TED Talk is. I mean, I think we were looking before, ahead of today, and I think your combined talks are like nearly 100 million views or whatever, something ridiculous. So um, I think a lot of people will be aware of many of your anecdotes and some of the stuff that you've been interested in throughout your career of course got your your books which are I mean they've done phenomenally well which is not surprising given I think the topics you've talked about now I hoped we could start we're going to talk about your latest book um, and particularly I mentioned that in context of ADHD and attention span given I was diagnosed with ADHD about six months ago I'd really like to start off by talking about sobriety because you you had a you have a really interesting take on addiction and I say take I think you have a really interesting point around uh, addiction and the idea around um, you know human connection being what's lacking Uh, and if you remove uh, human connection then people will look for maybe that sense of belonging or reward or whatever elsewhere do you think you could talk a little bit about that really and 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 particularly I like I like the uh, anecdote using uh, you know talking about the rats and things and the research that was done around that because I think if people haven't heard it I think it's an interesting perspective yeah well the reason I spent three years writing a book about this that was called chasing the screen was because you know I had a lot of addiction in my family one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to and I I was too little to understand why then but as I got older I realized we had addiction in my family several members of my family and um like a lot of people in that position I just felt like I didn't understand what was going on nothing I was doing was helping so I ended up going on this big journey all over the world I ended up traveling over 30,000 miles going to places that had completely different approaches to addiction places that had really harsh policies you know I went out in Arizona with a group of women who were made to go out on a chain gang wearing t-shirts saying I was a drug addict while members of the public mocked them and jeered at them and I went to places that had super compassionate policies. I learned a load about it, but I think what you're getting at um, is, is so many things we think we know about this subject are wrong. Uh, drugs aren't what we think they are. Addiction isn't what we think it is. The war on drugs isn't what we think it is. The alternatives to the war on drugs aren't what we think they are. But the thing that most blew my mind was realising, you know, I had seen addiction all my life and realising that I had profoundly misunderstood what I was seeing. So we think... Let's take heroin addiction, because that was close to me, right? We think if we grab the next 20 people to walk past us on the Parkland Walk, and like a villain in a Saw movie, we injected them all with heroin. My voice seemed like echoes. I was not, talking about being a villain. It's we're going into like a heroin conversation. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, you know, if like a villain in a Saw movie, we injected them all with heroin every day for a month, three times a day, at, at the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There's chemical hooks in heroin, that their bodies would start to desperately physically crave. And so at the end of those three months, they would be, you know, addicted. We, in fact, in English, you know, we use the word hooked. It's just another way of saying addicted, right? It turns out that story has some truth in it. Chemical hooks are real, but it's a very, very small part of a much bigger picture. The first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something not right about this story we've been told is when it was explained to me by doctors here in Britain like you, you know, if, if you or me, if we got hit by a truck now and broke our hips and got taken to hospital, there was a good chance we'd be given a lot of diamorphine for sure. the pain. Diamorphine is heroin, right? Yes. It's medically pure heroin. It's the good shit, right? Yeah, it's, it's the good. It's much the proper, better than what we'd score. It's the stuff. In, it's the proper stuff. So much better than what we'd score in Finsbury Park uh, at the end of this walk, right? Um, in British hospitals, 
people are given medically pure heroin, you know, quite frequently. If your nan's had a hip replacement operation, your nan's taken well, a lot of heroin. Well, as an anti doctor, I've used it over the years all the time. I mean, it, it is part of it. It's, a, it's actually a very fantastic drug. Yeah. It's a brilliant painkiller. It's, it's really, really useful for what we use it for. Exactly. And, and what a lot of doctors get saying to me is, so if what we think about addiction is true, that it's caused primarily or entirely by exposure to the chemical hooks in the drug, what should be happening to all these people in hospitals all over Britain, right? People who are given it for quite long periods of time. They should be leaving and trying to score on the streets. This has been studied very carefully. It virtually never happens, right? And well, I remember when I first learned that thinking, well, I don't believe that. That can't be true. How could you have someone in a hospital bed who's been given a load of really potent heroin they don't get addicted, and you've got someone in the alleyway outside the hospital shooting up who does. What's, how can that be? And it only began to make sense to me when I went to interview an incredible man named Professor Bruce Alexander, who did an experiment in the 1970s that's transformed how we think about addiction and led to extraordinary changes all over the world. So Professor Alexander explained to me, this theory we have that addiction is caused primarily or entirely by exposure to the chemical hooks in the drugs comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really, really simple experiments. Anyone listening, you could try these at home if you're feeling a little bit sadistic. <laughs> you take a rat, you put it in a cage, yeah, please don't. <laughs> and you give it two water bottles. Yeah. One is just water, the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, uh, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself quite quickly, right? So there you go. That's our story. The rat is exposed to the drug. It wants more and more of it until eventually it overdoses. Almost fits our narrative of what we kind of almost think of, well, yeah, well, that's, that's addiction, right? You go and take it, you get addicted to it, and, and then you die if you take too much of it, right? I mean, it's one of the origins of this story, and it completely fits with our, what feels like our common sense. Yeah. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander was working in Vancouver uh, with people with addiction problems. And he said, well, you look at these experiments. He said, well, hang on a minute. They put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing to do except use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats. Yeah. They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of coloured balls, they can have loads of sex. Anything that a rat finds meaningful. Rat heaven, basically. Exactly, yeah. it's like paradise for rats. <laughs> um, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water. And this is the fascinating thing. Of course, they try both. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water very much. They use it much less than rats in isolation. They never overdose. So you go from heavy compulsive use and frequent overdose when they don't have the things that make life worth living to no compulsive use and overdose when they do have the things that make life living. There's lots of human examples of this that we can talk about, but this made me realize the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, hugely valuable though that is to some people, the opposite of addiction is connection, right? Mm. The core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. Once you understand that, by the way, you understand why addiction rates almost doubled under COVID. Our whole lives yeah, became much more like those isolated cages and much less like Rat Park, right? So we've got to understand this in a more complicated way. Most importantly, because the places that actually built their drug policies around the insights from Rat Park found ways to massively reduce addiction. Whereas our policies, which are based on shame and stigma, massively increased addiction, because they're just based on the wrong theory of addiction, right? There's a theory it's the drug that does it, or the drug plays some role, and that we need to impose pain on people with addiction problems to give them an incentive to stop. But once you understand that pain is the cause, you can see how crazy that policy is.
So working on the kind of cause and looking at why someone would want to use in the first place is a big part of preventing someone wanting to use. I guess it, it's an interesting perspective because when you look at, um, I mean, the drugs involved or the drugs we talk about with addiction, whether it be I mean, smoking, so whether it's nicotine, whether it's uh, heroin, whether it's alcohol, whatever it is, all of them have kind of varying lengths of chemical addiction but most of them within short weeks or months the chemical component of that addiction goes right it kind of once you've gone through that period you've kind of gone past that chemical addiction but then what is left behind is sometimes even more inverted commas addictive right it's that kind of like what's left behind and the reason that someone might want to go back to, to using something is to do with the psychology or to do with the environment or to do with whatever's going on in their lives isn't it so you have to think about what void you fill or what you do in that space to create, I guess, a set of circumstances that you don't go back. And interesting, I've, I've stopped, not from a place of addiction, uh, from a health choice, I stopped drinking about 50 days ago now. And actually, I, I saw your TED talk and I had it very much in my mind when I stopped drinking. I said, right, okay, well, I've, I've stopped drinking. It's not from a place of addiction, but it doesn't mean the principles don't apply. If I stop drinking and I'm not going on Friday, Saturday to the pub or whatever, then I need to look for other forms of connection or do other things that let, allow me to feel fulfilled so that I don't feel like I'm missing out. It's almost like, you know, you go, right, I'm not going to drink for 30 days. You immediately think, oh, well, I feel like I'm like I'm taking away something good or I am like sacrificing something good whereas if you're trying to put something in its place go well actually I'm not going to drink but I am going to go to you know a fitness class with my friends or I'm going to go for walks or I'm going to do whatever you're kind of like creating like I'm looking for other ways to have the sense of reward almost that you get associated with the alcohol. I think it's a very important point Alex the way I would put it doesn't explain of course everything about addiction or depression or these wider phenomena but it's important is everyone knows they have natural physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in trouble really quickly. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting sure. people's psychological needs for a long time. And then, of course, during the pandemic, our ability to meet our psychological needs went off a cliff. So um, I think it's really important that we understand that. And what you're talking about is, OK, if, you, if your psychological needs were being met to some degree by hanging out in the pub, drinking a lot, what you're saying is, what is the alternative outlet sure. where I could get my psychological needs met, which is very healthy, because often we think, again, if we think back, and I know you're not saying that you and it sounds like you weren't addicted. Mm. But if we think about often with, if we have a very simplistic model of addiction, oh, it's just the drug, you think, well, the solution is just to take the drug away. Sure. Very often, I mean, Marianne Faithful, the great uh, rock singer, has a very, I mean, it slightly annoys me, she's most famous for being Mick Jagger's girlfriend because she's much better than Mick Jagger. <laughs> and I like Mick Jagger. <laughs> yeah, but, the, sure. but she's an absolute genius, Marianne. But she has a great line where she says, um, in the 60s, she had a period of being homeless, um, and she had a very bad heroin addiction. And she said, heroin saved my life because if it wasn't for heroin, I would have killed myself at that point. Mm, mm. Now, Marianne's obviously not saying that heroin no. is a good solution to despair for reasons absolutely everyone listening <laughs> yeah, knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But very, I get the track. Though, yeah. When you live in a culture where for a lot of people, they've not been offered solutions and answers to these deeper problems, sure. um, people will seek out something that blunts the pain, right? Now, that's not the answer. The answer is for us to deal with these underlying causes of the pain. And of course, I went to places that had done that. And obviously, I know lots of people who've done that. And I've written about that a lot. But if you want to understand why people are seeking out painkillers, you've got to understand why they're in pain, right? And we've got to deal with that pain. And we've got to stop 
acting like that pain is illegitimate. Yeah. Telling people it's a disorder, telling there's something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with them any more than there was something wrong with the rats in the isolated cages. There's something wrong with the way we're living. You know, Bruce, who did the... Professor Alexander, who did the rat park experiment, says, you know, we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery, and that is indeed hugely valuable. But we need to talk much more about social recovery. Something has gone wrong with us, not primarily as individuals, but as a group and as a society. But we can put that right if we want to. I went to places that did it. I went to places that almost halved their addiction rates. I could talk more about that if you want. But yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Where did you visit? Where did you so, go? So there's lots of places, but I'll give you I an mean, example. you travelled around the world on a lot of your research and books. And things. I got so to know a crazy you... mixture of people from yeah. Pablo Escobar's son <laughs> to, uh, who's an amazing person. You by need the way. to write a book on, on its own of just the journeys of <laughs> where you've meandered to um, your experiences. Because I think you've come out with some quite interesting. Uh... You know, I got, I got to meet a, a crazy mixture of people, but I think amongst the most moving was Portugal, where. So, Portugal in the year 2000 had one of the worst drug problems in the world. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is staggering. Wow, that's, yes, that is pretty high. <laughs> well, and every year they tried the shame punishment model more. And every year the problem got worse. Mm. Until finally, uh, one day the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they said, look, we can't go on like this, what are we going to do? So they decided to set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I became friends with called Dr. Zhao Gulao. And they said to them, you guys go away look at the best evidence and we've agreed in advance we'll do whatever you recommend so it just took it out of politics so the panel went away they looked at all the evidence including rat park and they came back and they said okay everyone here's what we're going to do we're going to decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack the whole lot but and this is the crucial next step we're going to take all the money we currently spend on screwing people's lives up shaming them imprisoning them giving them criminal records all of that and we're going to spend it instead on turning their lives around. And interestingly, it was not mostly what we think of as drug treatment in Britain and the US. So they do some residential rehab that has real value. But the biggest thing they did was a huge program of reconnection for people with addiction problems. Uh, part of it was housing, but a lot of it was, say you used to be a mechanic. They go to a garage and they say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages, right? The goal was to say, to every single person with an addiction problem yeah, in Portugal, we love you, yeah. we value you, we're on your side, we want you back. And the results, in, you know, when I went there, it was 13 years since the decriminalization and the best study of it by the British Journal of Criminology found that injecting drug use was down by more than 50%. Um, overdose deaths wow. were massively down. HIV transmission was down by, I think it was 90%. Burglary was massively down. One of the reasons you know it works so well is that almost no one in Portugal wants to go back. They've got a very competitive political system. And I remember I went to interview uh, a man called João Figueira, who was the top drug cop in Portugal at the time of the decriminalisation. And he said what loads of people totally understandably say when you say you talk about decriminalising all drugs. He said, well, this is madness. You can't do that. We'll have an explosion in drug use, have an explosion in kids using drugs. This is a nightmare. And he said to me, Everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. Mm -hmm. And he said he felt really ashamed that he spent so many years prior to the decriminalization, screwing people's lives up when he could have been helping them. And I saw this all over the world from Canada to Uruguay to Switzerland. The places that move beyond the drug war, it's super controversial at first. People think you're crazy. And then they see it in practice. And it's not a magic bullet. They've still got problems in Portugal, Switzerland, all the other places. 
But there's such an extraordinary improvement. Well, if you look at it as well, is that actually that's against the trend of other places. So a lot of other places we know that actually rates of drug use are on the up. And then what's interesting, um, you know, my role, I'm looking at like, why, why are we seeing increasing rates of eating disorders, of mental health issues in this country? And there's a stark alignment, I guess, with, with levels of loneliness. So like it shocks people to hear that the, young, the, the kind of 16 to 25 generation is not only the loneliest generation, but the loneliest generation ever uh, at present. And you've got to think, well, w- what happens with that loneliness? So what do they turn to? And then you start looking at when people don't feel like they have the connection they need. They, they, they may well turn to things that are not helpful for their health. So well, it's not, and it's an important point, Alex, and it's not just loneliness. So my book, Lost Connections, is all mm. about this. If you look at it, it's actually scientific evidence for nine factors, as you know, that cause depression and anxiety. Mm. Some of them are in our biology. Your genes can yeah. make you more sensitive to these problems, though they do <laughs> not it. write your destiny. Saved from a poo there. <laughs> <laughs> Saved your destiny. Story though. of my life. Um, <laughs> the, um, some of them are in our biology, but most mm. of them are factors in the world. Loneliness is a significant one. It's certainly not the only one. No, um, it's a huge but, one, isn't it? It's very big and it's growing. There are also lots of others. Think about financial insecurity, Mm. uh, massive increase in financial insecurity. Think about thinking life is all about money and status and likes on Instagram, having the wrong values. Um, climate, stress. The climate, the climate fear is a huge one yeah. at the moment. It's one of the, yeah. amongst one of the biggest things that, that young people uh, worry about. But it, it, it well, also, but that, that really helps us to think about it, right, mm. Alex? Because you think about climate. So often it's described as, oh, there's this problem of climate anxiety or climate, depression related to climate. How do we treat the climate related anxiety? Okay. This is crazy. They're the same ones. Yeah, 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 exactly. They're right to be anxious. It would be a bizarre species that was not perturbed by the potential destruction of its habitat, right? Well, I visited a school school in South uh, London a couple of weeks back, and this uh, young lad said to me, he was only about 13, he said, what what people got to start realising is we're, we're genuinely one of the first... Uh, generations that can conceivably imagine the end of humanity not just like a massive war but like will we exist beyond you know our next generation or so i mean it, it, well, and it i mean we should we should stay stick to the science global warming is a huge risk to lots of people yeah. it's not going to end the human no, species no no i know but i but, I, but it, but it shows his worry and fear, isn't it yeah i mean we just had a third of pakistan underwater mm. what three months ago mm. so we need to be yeah, it's uh, all about having a level of it all, but it was but you know, the point you raised was interesting. The, the Bengali philosopher Krishnamurti mm. said, it's no sign of good health to be well adjusted to a sick society, right? And it's really important for people to understand, very often, something happened to me that really helped me to think about this in a different way, right? I was in Vietnam uh, researching a, a different book that I haven't written yet, mm. and I had to interview loads of people who survived the Vietnam War. So we were travelling, I was staying in Hanoi, and we were traveling to these different kind of rural areas. And one day we got back to Hanoi and I was tired and I bought an apple in an alleyway. And um, I knew, you know, I read the travel books, okay, you're not meant to, you've got to wash the fruit before you eat it. So I wash it really thoroughly, I eat it. And it tasted weird, like chemically, but I was like, oh, I'm so hungry, I'll just have it. And apparently it turns out I later learned you can't just wash the fruit in Vietnam, you've also got to cut the peel off because there's so many pesticides used. Oh, gosh. So oh, the next okay. day I woke up and I was like, horrifically oh, like food poison like, like i was yeah, like the little girl in the exorcist yeah. projectile oh, vomiting it was horrendous but i was like okay you know i lived in east london on a diet of fried chicken for 10 years i <laughs> i know how food poisoning works so i'll just get through this and so i was really ill for like four days and i didn't have that much time left in vietnam and i called huang my um who's my fixer who sort of was arranging the interviews and translating for me and i said look i've got we're just gonna have to i'll just take some emodium we've just got to go and do these interviews so we went into the middle of the, um, 
you know, somewhere that's about five hours out of Hanoi. Mm. And I'll never forget this, I was sitting with this old woman who was one of the only, I think she was in fact the only person along with her children from her village who survived the Vietnam War. She's telling me a story and I'm sitting on the floor with her. And as she was speaking, the room started to spin around me and I felt really violently ill. Mm. And, um, and then I've got, I've got this on tape somewhere, I just literally start like vomiting. And this old woman said to Huang, you know, this guy's really ill, you've got to take him to the hospital. Mm. And I said to Huang, no, 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 just, let's just drive back to Hanoi, I'll be fine. And he said, Johan, this is the only person who survived the Vietnam War yeah, in this yeah, village. I am going to listen to her above you. We're yeah. going to the hospital. So I went to this hospital and I, it was the most alive I've been. I was like, I was horrifically, the, nothing would stop spinning. Sure. And, and it turned out what had happened is um, I had not retained any fluids for five days. So it was like my kidneys had stopped. It was like I was in, yeah. in the desert. So I remember very pretentiously as I was lying there thinking, God, I'm about to die. I remember very pretentiously thinking, I've been killed by an apple. I'm like Eve. I'm like Snow White, right? I'm like Alan Turing. <laughs> and they're thinking, oh my God, you're about to die. And your last thought is that pretentious. <laughs> but anyway, the doctors kept saying to me, so I was saying to them, you know, just give me something for the nausea, right? When I arrived, before they figured out what's wrong with me, give me something for the nausea, give me something for the nausea. And they wouldn't. And then one of the doctors said to me in Vietnamese, he said it through Huang, no, you need your nausea. It will tell us what's wrong with you. Hmm. And even then I'm thinking, oh, it's an interesting line. And it was only much later. Anyway, I left the hospital a few days later and I remember when they checked me out, I said to them, what would have happened if Huang had listened to me and we had just driven back to Hanoi? Mm. And they said, oh, you would have died on the yeah. way. Your kidneys had stopped. But I'm thinking, so that thing that seems like a malfunction was absolutely horrific. The, the, the nausea was necessary. Yeah. And that is also true. Think about that in relation to climate anxiety, right? Or indeed just anxiety or depression. Very often... Um, you know, and I had been very depressed when I was a teenager. Um, if we tell people stories that are overly simplistic about their depression and anxiety, it cuts them off from finding the best solutions. By far the best solution to climate anxiety is to solve the problem of the climate crisis, which, by the way, we absolutely can do, right? The technologies exist to do it. It needs the political will. Uh, you don't want to be paralysed with anxiety, but we, we should all be feeling enough anxiety to compel us to act. To do something, yeah. But that's also true of more less obviously politically yeah. caused forms of depression and anxiety, right? It needs other people to help you. But if we just pathologize it, even think about the language we use, it's an anxiety disorder. Mm. It's not a disorder, it's a response. And it's a really interesting perspective. Let's talk and delve a little bit deeper into that in the next part. Join us in part two very soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.